0: From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour.
1: end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start?
0: When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on
2: W T D R.
1: It's happening. I can feel it.
2: How would you explain it? It's <laughs> beautiful. God, it's God, I say God.
1: How do you like that?
2: Why, it's prosperous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our systems in the form of energy.
0: Is Rachel Jones. She's a journalist and freelance writer whose work has appeared in many well known publications, including The Lancet, The Columbia Journalism Review, and Scientific American. She has a long standing interest in death and dying, which she explores as a staff writer for Seven Ponds, a website and online magazine that informs the public about a wide array of issues related to end of life and She's the author of this book that we're going to be talking about, Grief on the Front Lines: Reckoning with Trauma, Grief, and Humanity in Modern Medicine, Perspectives from Healthcare Workers. So, Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. In this book, you lay out many of the systemic problems with our medical system, and in particular, The devastating effects that it has on our healthcare workers. Could you talk about how you came to write this book on this pervasiveness of trauma and grief among our medical healthcare workers?
3: Sure. Um, So as you mentioned in the introduction, I've been writing with Seven Ponds for a couple of years now. And it's a small website that informs the public about end-of-life issues. So there's Uh, materials and information for people who are approaching death or dealing with a loved one who is dying. Um, And there's a blog where we will often compile news from other sources or review books or movies, but we also do some feature articles and interviews with experts in the field. So I wrote a feature article for them about how clinicians handle the trauma of code blues, which is cardiac or respiratory arrest. And so I spoke with a number of doctors and nurses, a chaplain from different institutions around the country and was really surprised and touched by the extreme effect that these situations had on them. I didn't realize how violent they could be. Um, you know, you're doing chest compressions and possibly breaking someone's ribs. Uh, you're stabbing them with needles, trying to get an intravenous line in them. and so especially when you're dealing with somebody very elderly, this can be a very traumatic experience. So I was very touched and moved by the stories that I heard and the clinicians that I spoke to were very grateful to be able to have an avenue to explore the emotional aspect of their work. And so I published the article, about a month later, an editor at North Atlantic Books reached out and asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book. So I gave it some consideration. You know, it was a huge commitment. I probably devoted two years of my life entirely to this. But I decided to do it because it seemed important. It felt needed. And this was before COVID-19 had really become a pandemic. It was in January of 2020. And so it wasn't inspired by COVID-19. It just happened to overlap
0: with the pandemic. Right. And all of the things that you write about were existent long before the pandemic.
3: Right, so grief and trauma that clinicians deal with around death and dying and around the systemic failures that they encounter regularly were an issue long before the pandemic. I think the pandemic just shone a light on them.
0: Yeah, I found these stories very touching as well. I had no idea of the humanity of what was going on for, for all these healthcare workers. I've, I've had some negative experiences with doctors and so I tend to avoid them like the plague. <laughs> mm-hmm. But reading reading all of this just made them much more sympathetic. Even even the ones who have a dark side or have kind of lost their humanity in their work, you can sort of understand how how that could happen. Mm-hmm.
3: Right. And I think there's a tendency to view doctors and nurses and others in the medical field as almost superhuman or not human. And, you know, we distance ourselves from our providers in the same ways, in some ways that they may distance themselves from us because we like to think that they are the final authority and can cure us. So that creates an additional distance that in reality isn't really there because we're all human and we're all affected by death and dying, and we're all affected by the work that we do.
0: Mm -hmm. So why is our medical system so dysfunctional? And why is there so much pervasive traumatic effects on our medical workers? And could you also lay out the different types of medical workers, including the ones we rarely see, or even think of, Mm -hmm. and, and then get into the kinds of traumatic experiences and challenges that they face? many of them, every day in their work.
3: Right. So there's a couple of parts to your question. It's a really big question, and I'll start with the different medical workers. So the ones we hear about most often are, of course, doctors and nurses, but there are many others working in the system, such as CNEs, home health care aides, medical interpreters, orderlies who transport patients, Uh, There's a whole variety of phlebotomists, even security guards, and cleaning staff are often very deeply affected by the outcomes that their patients experience and come to know these patients over a period of time, especially those working in nursing homes or long-term care patients. So we often don't think of these individuals as being affected by the trauma that they encounter, but... For example, one medical interpreter that I interviewed had chronic PTSD from dealing with the effects of a bus accident in which many people, some 40 people, were injured, and she was trying to interpret for all of them simultaneously, as she was the only one on staff at the time. And these people are not always included in things like debriefings that happen after these major events, because they're just overlooked. And often they also are underpaid, CNAs and Other staff make much less money and receive fewer benefits. And so the burden on them is already higher than it is on many other staff because they're dealing with financial difficulties in addition to the grief and trauma they encounter in their work.
0: And CNAs are certified nurse assistants for for those who who aren't familiar with that.
3: Yeah. Thank you, Tonya. And so, you know, there's a wide variety of clinicians who are deeply impacted by their work you know, doctors and nurses and others in the field are all encountering patients who have terminal diagnoses. Um, They may have suffered a serious accident or trauma, or they may commit suicide, or there's so many different ways that the things that clinicians encounter can be traumatic. You know, they're also putting themselves in danger, often because there's so much violence in medical workplaces. We just saw this most recently with the shooting at the hospital in Tulsa. But it happens on a smaller scale, too, where emergency physicians are often hit. Nurses as well. They're often hit by patients who are have psychiatric issues or maybe have dementia, and they can be beaten, they can be thrown into the wall, and they don't always receive the support that they need in that regard. Um, bullying in the profession is really pervasive. There's also just... A lack of administrative support is something I heard over and over. I think administrators want to support their staff, but they don't listen and respond effectively. So often what they try to do is some sort of patchwork solution that isn't really effective and doesn't really address the needs of their staff. But then overarching all of that is the systemic issues, which are really responsible, I think, for... The fact that staff can't process the grief and trauma of their work if they had more space to do so or if they had the possibility of taking a day off or if they had an actual break time as a nurse, which, you know, nurses are mandated breaks. But if you have to choose between caring for your patient or taking your break, most of them are going to choose caring for their patients. So just these basic systemic issues, uh, lack of staffing, lack of adequate pay. Terrible work hours, these really make it impossible for staff to come into work being well in the first place. And if you come into a situation like that, not being well, then it's really hard (laughs) to process the difficult situations that you encounter.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a, a very tragic situation. And many of these people go into the medical profession to help others. So could you talk about the kind of schedules? And the stressful environments that many of these healthcare workers experience, especially in the hospital settings.
3: Right. And that's something I heard over and over is that, you know, these clinicians get into the field because they want to help others, like you said, and they are prevented from doing so or from really connecting with their patients by, you know, insurance that will only cover 15 minute visits or you know, up to 30 minute visits for a new patient. So most of them feel like they're not providing adequate care. You know, they, they, that's a huge source of distress for so many of the people I spoke to, which is that either they don't get enough time with their patients or they're so overloaded with patients such as, you know, nurses who are simultaneously dealing with nine patients or more, that they don't feel like they can provide the care that they want to be providing. So just that source of distress alone, then if there is a bad outcome, there's so much more guilt associated with it. There's so much more fear that you contributed in some way when ultimately it's not anything you've done wrong. It's just the fact that you're prevented from providing the care that you want to be.
0: And then on top of that, some of them have to face and talk to the families of those patients who died or or had some catastrophic outcome
3: right so they have to deliver bad news to patients directly and also to family members yeah which can be a very traumatic situation because you're seeing the grief directly you're maybe in some level feel responsible even though you're not so yeah that's a very traumatic aspect of the work as well and with the scheduling it's also you know, especially for um, medical residents and medical school students, it's just the hours that you're expected to work and the lack of sleep that's kind of accepted as a normal part of doing the work, which is really it makes no sense ultimately because it just increases the danger of medical errors, it increases depression, it increases all the things that contribute to bad outcomes and poor mental health. So, that's another issue as well.
0: Right. All that stress. And, and it begins right from the beginning in medical school.
3: Right. And that's something else I kind of learned. And, you know, we all hear about medical school and how hard it is as lay people. But until researching the book, I didn't really understand how it kind of indoctrinates people into this culture of stoicism and hazing and emotional unavailability where it just encourages people to put up this wall and become this superhuman machine, which most people can't do effectively because it's just not human. And it just kind of leads to this ongoing culture, which I think is probably rooted in white male patriarchy, that you know we don't have emotions. We don't express them if we do have them. And we aren't affected by the work that we do and we're, we don't need food or sleep to do it. <laughs>
0: Mm -hmm. And to begin with, in our culture, we're not very good at dealing with grief and and death and talking about these things and and really being present with these kind of difficult emotions. Right. And then then our uh, healthcare workers are kind of thrown into the fire of all of that with little support. And you mentioned debriefing. What goes on in these debriefings? And How much difference do they actually make in the context of all of this?
3: Uh, Yeah, so as you mentioned, we are kind of a grief-denying and death-denying culture at large. And so when we go into hospitals or healthcare organizations, our expectation is that we'll be saved oftentimes. And healthcare workers often feel that burden if we must save this person. So when they aren't able to, it's a lot to process. And these debriefings are one way to do that. They often occur immediately after a bad outcome. So after a patient dies, people will gather around and they can be done more or less effectively. I think the less effective ones really only go over the medical facts. Like what did we do correctly? What could we have done better? And those don't do much for processing emotions, but the ones that are effective do talk about how are you dealing with this? How are you feeling? How did it make you feel that this patient died? You know, what can we do to support you? Do you need a few minutes to take a break? Uh, those kind of things. Or, especially if the person kind of leading the debriefing who was participating in the situation is able to say, you know, I'm worried about this. I wish I'd done this differently and kind of model for their staff that they're not perfect and that people aren't expected to be perfect. That has a huge impact as well. Um, I do think they are effective in the moment because they allow people to process emotions rather than just stuffing them down and never dealing with them or trying to deal with them at the end of a really long day when they're probably just too burned out to do so i don't think that they're a final solution to the many problems facing the medical system but they're just one method that is effective at processing emotion
0: so let's talk about the understanding of the kind of support that's needed in the medical field and what exists and what doesn't exist within the context of our medical system and what happens when these things aren't addressed or when there isn't support for the well-being of our healthcare workers
3: right well i think we've been seeing even prior to the pandemic what happens when the support isn't there which is that people are burning out at a very high rate you know over 40% burnout rates before the pandemic. And so I think, you know, you can only subject yourself to this kind of environment for so long before it takes a toll on you. And then during the pandemic, that was just heightened for many people. Some of the things that are working are things like programs such as Johns Hopkins has a program called Resilience and Stressful Events, where if a bad outcome occurs, you can page someone and they'll come speak to you within the same day, ideally, about what happened. And that's a peer support system, which is a component that's really important because even though therapists can be helpful, most clinicians prefer to speak to a peer who knows what it's like to walk in their shoes and that they don't have to explain everything to them. They understand where they're coming from. So there are other peer support systems like buddy systems where you have someone you can connect with in your own hospital and talk to about things that happened. And those seem to be quite effective. Things like Schwartz Rounds, which were started by the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Healthcare, that come in and gather clinicians from all levels of the units together and have them talk about a specific case and the emotional impact that it had on them are very effective. There's the Healers Art, which is an educational program that enables people to kind of bring the heartful reasons that they came into medicine in the first place into their understanding of their role, which is important. But all of these things are kind of patchwork in a way. You know, they're wonderful, and we need more of them, and they need to be embraced. But until the systemic issues themselves are addressed, I don't see much changing overall. You know, I think self-care for a lot of clinicians is seen as this sort of mandate that you're responsible for your own health and well-being. And if you're not doing your yoga and your mindfulness, then you're failing. And they already feel like they're failing. So that's just another thing that they're not succeeding in doing. And so it's a very loaded term. And it's very limited in terms of what clinicians can actually do for themselves when they don't have the systemic support. So I mean to me that's the first most obvious thing is really taking the profit motive out of healthcare which you know they just don't go together and as somebody who grew up in Canada it just seems obvious to me that it doesn't make a lot of sense to combine the two so doing things like that investing money in your staff which is something you know no profit making organization wants to really think about but that's really what's needed is more monetary investment in paying staff, providing things like childcare, providing real meals, not, you know, a pizza party once a month as sort of a token of appreciation, providing them with appropriate insurance so that they can seek mental health when they need it, making mental health care accessible and non-punitive. These are the kind of systemic changes that are needed that I think a lot of people don't realize how bad the situation is in healthcare right now. And most of the clinicians I spoke to and reporters I know in the field agree with that. And until dramatic changes are made, I don't see a whole lot changing.
0: In the U.S. healthcare system, we already spend way more per capita than any other developed country. And I think the outcomes and results of what we spend per capita are pretty low by comparison to other developed nations. Um, how could things change if the economic issues were changed if we didn't use private healthcare, and if we had let's say a single payer system and also a, a kind of universal electronic records and billing system that was simple to use for everybody throughout the entire system
3: yeah i mean i think that those are huge things and a lot of work has been done around how having a single payer system would impact patients and I think it's been shown pretty clearly that that would have a tremendously positive impact in that way. And in my book, I was looking more at how would it impact clinicians and, you know, a quarter basically of hospital earnings is spent on administrative issues, which has to do with billing and, you know, the electronic medical record and all of these things, which if you reduce that is already a huge reduction in costs. And you can use the money that you save to better support your staff and reduce, you know, the amount of paperwork that they're doing. So I do think that it would have a significantly positive impact on clinicians to make that switch. In terms of the electronic medical record, I heard that over and over as well. There needs to be some sort of streamlined system that functions well. I don't really know why um, in this technologically advanced age, we haven't been able to make that happen yet, but I think It needs to be a universal system, and there needs to be some investment into having a technology company that is user-friendly come up with a functioning system, because right now it's just simply too weighty. One person I spoke to, Adam Gaffney, who was the former president of the Physicians for a National Health Program, used the term in one of his articles, administrative bloat, which I thought was very appropriate and kind of explains what... So many systems are struggling with right now and isn't really necessary.
0: And we're terribly understaffed at the moment, and that situation's only projected to get worse.
3: Yes. So that was a shocking thing to learn as well is that, you know, there's a predicted deficit of up to nearly 140,000 positions by next year as well as like an ongoing nursing shortage. And we don't really have the residency slots or the nursing training programs to increase the numbers in a way that we need. And this is occurring at the same time that, of course, the U.S. population is aging very quickly with you know, 10,000 people a day turning over 65 and 73 million people reaching that threshold by 2030. So it's just a kind of a dire situation And then this is happening at the same time that we have high burnout rates. I did recently look at the figures for turnover during the pandemic, and it's actually hasn't been too bad in the last couple of years, because even though a lot of people are leaving jobs, many are finding other jobs in the healthcare setting. So attrition from the healthcare field hasn't been terrible, but this is still a huge problem, and it's going to only get worse unless something dramatic is done. So I do think some significant changes need to be made in that regard as well. Yeah.
0: So that's combined with the way the insurance company limit the amount of time that they're willing to pay for. And it sounds like that affects hospitals and clinics staffing and hiring policies as well. Is is that the case? And why is that allowed to continue considering that I would imagine that the general population want good health care. Is the public that ignorant of what's going on in the healthcare system? I mean, people are going to doctors all the time and they're experiencing these short visits and lack of connection with their doctors. And I'm just curious how this dysfunction continues on
3: yeah I mean, it definitely many places are short staffed. you know, like you said, they have those sort of set times that you're allowed to spend with a patient. Um, a lot of places seem to be kind of patching things up with travel nurses at the moment more and more, which is basically temporary nurses that they hire for a set number of months and can renew their contract potentially after that time. But yeah, it's very piecemeal solution and isn't sustainable. I do think the general public is aware, I think of, you know, I've used the healthcare system a fair amount myself and, you know, I use it for what I need it for, but I don't feel connected to my doctor. I don't think my doctor feels connected to me. And I do think that lack of connection is a huge, it spurs people in the medical field to leave and open an independent practice. And then it spurs patients to seek out alternatives, whether that's alternative medicine or paying out of pocket A lot more money to see a practitioner outside of the mainstream. Of course, most people can't afford to do that, but I do think long term, the way that it's set up is just simply not sustainable. And I don't know that administrators really understand how bad things are. I think they think they can just keep doing what they've been doing and that it's going to keep working, but it just isn't sustainable in the long term.
0: So talk about the schedules that many healthcare workers work under. For example, uh, my mother was an anesthetist, she worked in a, a New York City hospital for a year. And when she was doing that, they had 40 hour shifts. And she said that there were times when you know, they could take naps. But then there were also times when they were swamped. And they didn't have the opportunity to take a nap or a break or even to eat. And she, because she was working in the operating room, she told numerous stories of doctors literally falling asleep in the middle of an operation with a patient body cut open with a scalpel in their hand and and starting to snore right in the middle of an operation. And that this was not uncommon.
3: Yeah, that's really insane. And, and- I, I do think schedules have gotten slightly better, but they are still crazy. You know, so the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education has limited work hours for residents to no more than 80 per week since 2003. Residents, medical residents, um, typically have the craziest schedules, but as, you know, some of the individuals I spoke with clarified, that often isn't adhered to because people work longer hours, and they don't report that. So there's no punitive measures for the institution because they just want to get through their residency and get qualified and be able to work. So they're just trying to make it through. And even after that, you know, um, yeah, 36-hour shifts. Most nurses work 12-hour shifts, which, interestingly, most of them prefer because it means they work fewer days per week. So they have, say, they work three or four 12-hour shifts, and then they have three or four days off in a row. And they prefer to do that than working shorter shifts. But there needs to be some discussion of how then do we make sure they're getting the breaks that they need, you know, which many nurses aren't taking their breaks. So one solution is hiring a break nurse, which is what they do in California. And it seems like a no brainer to me, or even having pro diem staff that can fill in so that someone can take a day off when they need to, I think is really important. But yeah, this whole (laughs) sense that we can work for 36 or 40 hours, even doing less significant work is not really reasonable. And then to think that somebody in the medical field who is responsible for someone's life is put under that kind of pressure is just pretty ridiculous. So I think that there needs to be some serious discussion of what kind of schedules are sustainable and then what work within the hospital framework, because that's an issue too, which is you can't necessarily just adjust things without considering how the turnover happens in the hospital when new staff comes on. So just really looking at individual systems and figuring that out is important. But things like I mentioned, like break nurses or setting limits on hours and then forcing institutions to adhere to them, I think are really important, both for the well-being of clinicians and the well-being of their patients.
0: In the book, there were numerous stories of people working 80 hours or even as much as 120 hours a week. That was absolutely insane. I mean, there's no other industry that I'm aware of that is subject to those kind of conditions. And these are the people that are charged with the health and well-being. Yeah, I mean, they, absolutely- they have people's lives in their hands and they're being subject to these outrageous conditions, insane conditions, it seems to me.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I think it's insane as well. And yeah, it just really doesn't make sense that we would put people under that kind of pressure when they have to care for our lives. Yeah, like you mentioned, I think the one man I spoke to who spent a long time studying depression among interns, specifically medical interns, said basically anything more than 50 to 55 hours a week is unreasonable in terms of pure mental health standards you know anything more than that causes depression let alone you know falling asleep on the job or medical error or all of those concerns and Pamela Weibel who's a well-known physician mental health advocate she's done some TED talks on the epidemic of physician suicide and she basically when I spoke to her she was like people always ask me you know what do you want why are you doing this because she's She's really interesting to me because she's something of an outlier in that people are a little afraid to associate with her because she's so outspoken, but then you speak to clinicians one-on-one and they all know who she is and they all watch her videos and they all relate. So it's kind of this sort of underground thing. And so she says people ask her, you know, what do you want? Why are you doing this? And she says, I just want physicians to have the same labor laws as other people where they can work, you know, more than eight hours a day and they get mandated breaks and they actually get to take those breaks, which isn't a huge demand. You know, that's not a lot to ask for, but it does seem to be sorely lacking in the field.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it made me reflect on teachers who, you know, they put in their 40 hours a week in school, but then they often have to do as much as another 40 hours a week or more at home doing you know grading and reading papers and and other kind of administrative work that they have to take home so it seems like the people that are actually most important in our society are getting thrown under the bus right and
3: it just goes to show like how we as a society where we choose to invest our money you know it's that whole thing where instead of investing in our healthcare workers and in our educational system, we invest in the military. And, you know, look where that's gotten us in two long-term failed wars. And yeah, all the, it just makes no sense. And something dramatically needs to change. It's so uh, disturbing and just insane to me, yes, that we don't invest in the education of our children or in our own well-being, really, because we're all going to die and we're all getting closer, and there's going to be more of us dying, and we're completely unprepared for it.
0: Mm -hmm. You write that many healthcare workers do not avail themselves of the kind of mental health support or other things that could help them deal with the kind of trauma and grief that they experience on the job, or else they don't even realize how much they actually need the help, or don't know how to ask for the help, or just feel incapable of even, you know, considering the notion of taking care of themselves when they're in such a state of despair and overwhelm.
3: Yeah, this was another thing that was very surprising to me was to learn how hard it is or can be to access mental health services for clinicians. Because to me, it's like, Mental health is just another aspect of what we do as human beings, you know, like I'd go to therapy, I'd take an antidepressant and like, to me, that just seems like a normal human functioning. It doesn't make you weak, it makes you more open-hearted and functional. So to me, learning about how hard it is for clinicians who deal with these traumatic accidents and, you know, dead babies and very unthinkable things to many of us have a hard time accessing these services So there's a couple of reasons for it, and one is that there's a very real concern of licensing repercussions. You know, only around 10 states ask questions on the renewal application that are in compliance with the American with Disabilities Act, and the number for nurses is similar. So, for example, Washington State, where I'm currently living, has a pretty exemplary question where they only ask about a medical condition that would affect your ability to function in your role in the moment. Other states will ask about past conditions. They'll ask about hypotheticals, like, do you think you have any condition that could, in the future, have an impact? And all these questions put clinicians in a difficult spot because if they answer that they do have any sort of mental health condition, then they can be subjected to this inquiry. Their mental health records can be read and investigated. So it's a very tough spot to be in because people have worked really hard to get where they are and they don't want to endanger that for any reason. So there's a very real fear of repercussions. And then on top of that, there's just a stigma because even in states where that's not likely to happen, there's still a fear that it could. So I think there's a lack of real messaging around the fact that mental health care is okay. It should be accessible. You should take advantage of it. And that's changing a little bit because there's been some legislation recently, the Lorna Breen Healthcare Provided Protection Act, which is requiring the Department of Health and Human Services to start a messaging campaign that does encourage clinicians to seek mental health care and also funds institutions to provide mental health care for their staff. But this is just so much work to be done in that area. People are still very afraid. During the pandemic, there was one study that found 45% of emergency physicians were afraid to seek mental health care, even though they wanted it. So that's just a really high number. And then beyond that, there's just a stigma in the field that if you need mental health care, you're weak or you're not capable, you're not able to perform the, the role that you have been hired to do. So I think that, institutions need to send the message to their staff that this is important and it's okay and we encourage it. And higher level staff need to show themselves as an example that they are seeking mental health care themselves and they need to create a culture where that's not seen as weak and where it's not punished in any way, even for, say, a staff member who takes a day off. I think a lot of times because everyone is so short-staffed, it puts everybody else in a bad place. And so when they come back, it's like, oh, you know, there's the person who took a mental health day or whatever. And so it's just really important to create the kind of atmosphere where someone can do that without being punished socially or in much more serious ways.
0: And one of the things that was so moving is that many of these healthcare workers are experiencing the kind of PTSD that people experience in war
3: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you think about it, it's not too surprising considering what they're exposed to, you know, like these trauma situations can be so violent. And so it's not that shocking that they would experience this kind of PTSD. And the numbers are quite high. You know, that there was one study from a woman at the University of Colorado that found close to 25% of nurses were experiencing symptoms of PTSD. And so when you think about coming into a workplace where you're constantly exposed to trauma, you're constantly dealing with people who are suffering immensely. How can you not be affected by that? So to be unable to seek mental health care on top of that, or to feel unable to do so is just completely mind-blowing to me. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So moving from that kind of trauma to grief, talk about the need for closure and the importance of dealing. With the grief that we experience and what happens to us when we don't. Mm-hmm. You know, as individuals and on the entire system. Yeah,
3: and they're definitely related. I think closure is definitely something that came up a lot, whether that's something as simple as knowing the outcome. For example, 911 responders who take the call and then never know. What happened to that person in the end? It's really hard for them. So having some sort of system that kind of circles back and lets people know and then ideally has some kind of debriefing around it is just something that simple makes a huge difference. And then I think it also is important for us where having time to spend with patients is important and their family members. Because when someone dies or there's a very difficult situation, having time to actually process that and it can be done in a brief period of time you know there was the pause which was introduced by Jonathan Bartels who was a nurse in Virginia and he came up with this idea after watching a chaplain say a prayer after a patient died and so he came up with this idea of the pause where you just take a moment of silence and you can pray to whatever god or deity you believe in or you can just kind of Hold that person in silence or just honor their passing in whatever way is appropriate for you. And that can be really powerful, even though it's really brief, just because it allows people to feel like they are honoring that person's life and the effort that they made to help them. And they don't leave feeling just frazzled and upset and like a failure, basically. So something that simple can make a difference. And a lot of places are starting to do things like that. But in a larger sense, I think making a space, some of the people I talked to, for example, had like a chapel or like a meditation space within their hospital where they could go and kind of process things. So creating a space like that, making people available to talk to, whether that's chaplains or therapists or just normalizing that, even just during a morning huddle, talking about feelings, bringing emotions into the day-to-day discussion, I think makes a big difference. So these are some small ways. And just acknowledging that the grief is there, because that's something that I heard over and over. I think we're getting a little better at it now with the pandemic, because people are realizing that healthcare workers are affected, and this is an issue. But just acknowledging that it's there is huge, because I think for so long, healthcare workers were just seen as this stoic, unaffected group of people that was available to save us when we needed them, which is just so far from the truth.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're they're just human beings, just like the rest of us.
3: Right, exactly. Yeah. And one other thing that came up that was really powerful that came up again and again was the importance of ritual. So the pause is one example of that. But ritual can be done, you know, on a personal level where someone does something as simple as lights a candle in memory of a patient or takes a walk along the ocean thinking of them, or it can be done on an institutional level where you have days of remembrance and everybody remembers the patients who died during a certain period of time and has an opportunity to share something about them or to honor them in some way and then to honor the clinicians who cared for them. And those are really important because... If you think about, you know, what we do when someone dies, we have a funeral, we have a way to kind of express our feelings. And it takes longer to move on, of course, but just doing that is so significant. And I think in our society, we've really failed to incorporate ritual as much as we should. You know, we do weddings and funerals, but there's not much more than that. And it's such a powerful way to integrate, I think, difficult emotions that we could really do more of.
0: Mm -hmm. And it seems like what these rituals and taking time to pause, what they're doing is, you know, on a neurological level, they're they're activating our parasympathetic nervous system, which is Mm -hmm. so critical, particularly for healthcare workers who are constantly in sympathetic mode.
3: Yes. And that's a really good point. Yeah. And that's, I think, where things like you know, meditation and mindfulness come in, but it's so hard. You can't just tell somebody be mindful or meditate, you know, you have to create the conditions where that can happen. So that's what doing things like the pause does. Everyone is stopping. And so what do you do in that moment? You, like you said, you, you activate that part of the brain and nervous system that will help you to slow down.
0: Yeah. Could you tell us about Dr. Trawick and the story of J.D. Oldmouse and his family?
3: Sure, so yeah, Joey Travick was a nurse and he was caring for a lot of people in Montana. And so he was about to retire when he was put on this floor that was supposed to be kind of mellow. And then the pandemic happened and it was converted into a COVID-19 unit. So he was caring for these patients and these were patients who had decided not to go to the ICU and be intubated. And so, you know, he had these COVID-19 patients who were going through this very difficult situation and, you know, some 20-something of them died. And so most of his patients were from nearby Native American reservations. So mostly Northern Cheyenne and Shady Oldmost was a flute maker for the Cheyenne and he was caring for him. And I think initially they had a sort of a tempestuous relationship, but then they got along really well and became friends. So when he died, Joey wasn't with him at the time, but J.D. Oldmose's family was downstairs in the parking lot and called Joey. And so he went down there and he thought, you know, they're going to be angry at me. But instead they they were in a circle and they put him in the middle of the circle and prayed for him. And he just said that was so incredibly moving that he was on his knees crying. So that, yeah, that speaks to what we were just talking about in terms of ritual and honoring someone's passing, someone's death, but also honoring the person who cared for them and who tried so hard to save them. And I think that kind of appreciation is lacking a lot of times. Initially, when the pandemic started, you know, there were people were writing messages on the sidewalks and, you know, banging pots and pans, but as it went on, I think so many clinicians were just devastated by, first of all, the lack of appreciation, but more than that, even the antagonism that they experienced or people's unwillingness to adhere to the CDC's recommendations. And so, just the total lack of support, they went from feeling this initial support to this total lack of support, both from their institutions and from mainstream society. And so, I think it's really powerful when people. Experience that sort of outpouring of love and appreciation and finding real ways to do that. Because I think so often institutions, their attempt to do that is basically, you know, the joke among most medical staff is the pizza party, which really is not, doesn't show a real appreciation. It isn't even healthy. So just finding ways to really do that and to mourn in effective ways and to show appreciation in effective ways.
0: Mm -hmm. So in the last section of the book, you delve into the controversies around death and dying in the medical world, including dying with dignity, medical aid in dying, and what you refer to as aggressive treatments at the end of life when it's unlikely to change an outcome.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And also patients being put on life support under those same kind of circumstances just to prolong life. Could you give us a bit of historical perspective on all of that, including the different sides of that and the effects of being in a position to play God with people's lives?
3: Yeah, that's a big question. So, yes, our approach to death has changed a lot in recent years as, you know, we've become wealthier, We have more options i talked to some physicians from other countries and they were like we don't see these issues around death and dying in say india or pakistan the way that you do here because we don't try to prolong the life of somebody who is you know 90 something years old and has metastatic cancer so it's definitely a very western and american issue So as we're getting older and, you know, life expectancy is getting higher and more of us are getting older, we also simultaneously have these additional treatments that we didn't have in the past. So, you know, we can resuscitate somebody from cardiac arrest or we can intubate them and they can have a machine breathe for them. There's a machine called the ECMO that will take your blood out of your body and oxygenate it and pump it back in. So there's all these things that we can do that we weren't able to do in the past to prolong life. And it's both a blessing and a curse because we can save people's lives, but at the same time, we can have somebody who's so close to death and really is heading in that direction regardless of what we do. And we can pour all this money and effort and time into keeping them alive, Often, only so that they can suffer more. And so I think it's become much more important for people to clarify for themselves what they want at the end of their own lives. And, you know, there are advanced directives where you can fill out forms stating what you would want at the end of your life. And these are more applicable to people who already have life limiting conditions or chronic illnesses or terminal illnesses. But it's important to even at any age consider a healthcare surrogate or a decision maker that you can legally say if something happens to me like a dramatic accident, I want this person to make the decisions on my behalf and they know what my values are so they understand, for example, what I'm willing to live with and what I would rather not. They understand at what point I want to be saved and at what point I would prefer to be let go. So these are you know, not as common as they should be. People, I think, since the pandemic are a little bit more aware of the importance of this kind of laying the ground or making the paperwork available and making their family members and loved ones aware of what their wishes are. But when that doesn't happen and someone's sent to the hospital, clinicians are going to resuscitate them regardless of how old they are or whether it's ultimately in their benefit And this is traumatic for patients, it's traumatic for families, it's traumatic for clinicians. So just clarifying this kind of question ahead of time is just so important.
0: Could you Mm -hmm. talk about the unanticipated complications that can arise even with patients who have advanced directives and how those advanced directives can be ignored or overridden by doctors or family members after the patient is either unconscious or unable to uh, take responsibility.
3: Right. And that happens. And that's why, you know, having it laid out as clearly as possible is important, but it does happen where, say, an emergency technician shows up at someone's house and the person has suffered a cardiac arrest, they're going to do CPR on them. If they don't have that advanced directive directly in front of them, they're going to perform CPR. And so, Yes, family members also at the bedside can, unless they make that known to the staff, it can get overridden quite easily. Sometimes staff will just kind of not be aware or not fully agree possibly and resuscitate regardless.
0: And I've heard stories of doctors actually having do not resuscitate tattooed on their chest.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I've heard of that too. I don't know how accurate it is um, or if it's just the urban myth, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I know most clinicians. There was one study in there that I referred to where, given the outcome of irreversible brain damage. Most said that they would not want to be resuscitated. And I think most clinicians I've spoken to say they very clearly do not want extreme measures because they've seen the outcome, they've seen how it impacts patients and families and how it draws out the death process and how traumatic it can be for everyone involved.
0: And isn't there a fairly low rate of success in resuscitations? And even when there is success that there's trauma,
3: Yes, I mean, if you're young and healthy, then it's one thing. If you're elderly and frail and already suffering from a disease process, then yes, that's another thing entirely. And the outcomes are quite poor. Yeah, your likelihood of leaving the hospital is something like 24% after resuscitation. So, yeah, it's a completely different scenario if you are in a car accident and if you're. An elderly person who is suffering from terminal illness.
0: And I think I remember you quoting a healthcare worker saying that when a resuscitation is done correctly, that the sternum and ribs are broken.
3: Right, right. So it's very violent. You know, chest compressions are very violent and need to be done quite strongly. And so especially for elderly, frail people, that's a real likelihood of
0: happening. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's get into medical aid in dying and the the issues involved in that, the controversies and the, the arguments for and against.
3: Yeah, and this was a really interesting part for me because a lot of people have very strong opinions one way or the other and I don't, so it was just really interesting for me to explore all the different perspectives. So Medicated diag is legal in 10 states and Washington, D.C., and it basically means that somebody with a terminal illness who has six months or less to live can ask a doctor for medication to end their life and receive that legally. They have to self-administer, so that means that a doctor can't give it to them, but they have to ingest it themselves on their own, so that creates barriers for some people with movement issues. And they also have to be of sound mind. So you can't be suffering from dementia and take part in medical aid and dying. So, yeah, it's very controversial. But the states where it's been legal the longest, so Oregon and Washington, haven't seen any real pushback or anybody who's really regretted, you know, family members who've filed lawsuits or anything after the fact. It hasn't been a very controversial issue since it's been passed. It's still very controversial on a personal level, both for patients and clinicians, many of whom have strong opinions about it. So people who are for it, you know, they see their patients suffering, they believe that they shouldn't have to go through the entire death process in this way, especially if they're suffering from something very challenging like ALS or something where the suffering is just immense, very painful cancers, for example. They see no reason that somebody should not be able to end their life slightly earlier. And then, of course, those opposed see it as playing God. They see it as opposed to the Hippocratic Oath, a version of which they take after they finish medical school. And then they just see it as opposite to their entire purpose, which is to heal and to not always to cure, but to support patients in whatever they're going through. So it is controversial. It is something that I think is going to continue to expand, especially as we deal with these ongoing issues of living longer and our healthcare system being unable to support (laughs) the elderly population. I just think it's something that people are going to consider when they encounter very painful or life-limiting illnesses. Interestingly, those who participate actually say the reasons they do so are more loss of autonomy and loss of dignity than they are pain or suffering. So that's something that opponents take issue with as well, that we, instead as a society, should be creating a situation where people who feel a loss of autonomy or dignity still feel supported and cared for. So that's something to consider as well.
0: Could you explain why doctors are not allowed to administer the medication to help people die?
3: Right. So that would be considered, and the terminology is strange here because the terminology that opponents use and the terminology that advocates use is different. So euthanasia could be used for medical aid and dying as well. And it is often by opponents, but that would basically be active euthanasia where the physician would be administering the medication. And the concern there is that they could be doing so without the patient's real consent or that they could be making kind of a judgment on behalf of the patient or Is just such a fuzzy gray line that, you know, it is legal elsewhere. It is legal in the Netherlands, but it's something that here in the US is still very controversial.
0: Mm -hmm. And you write about Dina Davis, who has a fairly radical attitude about taking things into her own hands before they get out of control, Mm -hmm. like with Alzheimer's or or other conditions like that.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's an interesting right to die activist. And so she believes that if she were to get Alzheimer's, she would not want to live through what she saw her mother live through in the years between diagnosis and death. And so she would just take her own life. And that is definitely a radical idea. I don't have strong opinions about it. But I did at one point for Seven Pawns, I was asked to write or I thought I wanted to write a story about what is termed irrational suicide. And I started to look into it more and I decided I couldn't write the story because I didn't know how, I didn't know the impact it would have. And I think a lot about the impact that what I do has or my work has. And I felt that the stories that I read, the essays that I read around rational suicide were very much about control. So they were written about people who had decided to go this route. And they were very much about the desire to remain in control, which I think is a very human thing. And not entirely negative, but and I started wondering, you know, where is the line between rational, like is it rational suicide if you're young and depressed? Is it rational suicide? When is suicide rational or not? And who are we to say? what that is, or when it's okay, and when it's not okay. So it just became too fuzzy of a line for me personally to even write the
0: story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. So in your bio, it says that you have a long standing interest in death and dying. Could you talk more about that?
3: Yeah, I think I've always been curious about death. I'm, I have never been afraid of it, which so it's really interesting to me that most people are. And so I think that has made me more intrigued because I've never found it something to be frightened of or even terribly sad about. You know, I, I do think grief is very real and significant because you're experiencing a loss. You lost a person who was important to you, whether that's a death or the loss of a relationship or whatever. It is, so grief is very real. But in terms of my personal relationship with death, I've never found it something sad or frightening in and of itself. And so I think that's where my curiosity comes from. And then also the whole concept of what is death, what happens when we die, which none of us have any real good answers to, also made me curious about it. And then, you know, as I got older, it became more about, well, all of us are going to die. And we all avoid the topic like the plague. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's just this interesting thing to me that this huge part of what it means to be human is completely sidelined. And that goes for grief and aging as well. We just don't talk about it. And it's something that we're all impacted by, or even things like childbirth and puberty and all these things that we all go through, we don't really discuss or we kind of brush under the rug. And so I think that those kind of things have always been interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I share that interest. and And I also feel that way about death, that mm-hmm. it doesn't frighten me. I'm scared of suffering, but I'm not afraid of dying. And I also don't feel sad when other people die in that way. I mean, yes, there is the grief of losing, you know, Having that void of not having them there, but I don't feel bad for them.
3: Right. Yes, likewise. And I always felt like something was wrong with me when I was young because I would see people's upset around death and I was always so confused by it. But like you, I was always very affected by suffering. And so, yeah, the two things are completely separate in my mind.
0: And for me, because of my own aversion to suffering, and particularly my aversion to seeing other people suffering. In that way, death actually made more sense. Like, right, I, I have a very hard time judging somebody for committing suicide, because to me, they felt that they had a darn good reason to do that. In that moment. I mean, it's unfortunate, because, you know, emotionally, we have our ups and downs. And a lot of a lot of what happens in life is timing.
3: Mm -hmm. Right. I completely agree with you. And I've always felt the same way that in some ways it takes a lot more, and maybe this is part of being a very sensitive person, but it takes a lot more courage and it's a lot more challenging to stay alive than it is to die in my mind. So
0: yeah, I completely understand what you're saying there. And there's an interesting line in the foreword of the book written by Danielle Orphy, and she wrote this book will hopefully allow you to stay in the room, present with the pain and the grief, without being destroyed by it. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, and I think that's the thing. Is and this might be getting off topic a little bit, but as a you know a very sensitive person, when I was young, I kind of learned to shut down my own feelings and emotions, and you know it was what helped me function for a certain amount of time. And then at a certain point that became, I realized it wasn't working and it wasn't a healthy way to be. And so I kind of, I guess, reconnected to my own sensitivity to the world, which was both beautiful and challenging. And it's how do you not get overwhelmed by it? And that's kind of what she's getting to in that forward, which is, you know, there's choices, which is, you know, the first is to avoid it completely or dissociate. And the second is to be present with it. But how do you do that in a way that? Doesn't overwhelm you, and I think that's a constant learning process for everybody. And it takes a lot of courage. But I do think, as a society, we are starting to realize the necessity for it because living in any other way just doesn't make sense, and it leads us to the kind of situation that we're in now as a society as a whole.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think that was off topic at all. Okay,
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> actually, very relevant for you know our humanity. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Could you talk about hospice care and also what you've learned about healthy ways of relating to and processing the kind of difficult emotions that, that go along with death and dying? Yeah.
3: So, you know, hospice care has become, it's relatively new. You know, it wasn't paid for by Medicare until the 1980s. And so, it's definitely something new that we've been kind of embracing as a society, which is this sense or this idea that we need to die well and that we can't only focus on prolonging life, but we also need to accept that we're all going to die and we need support in doing that. And so hospice care is really wonderful because it, clinically it's seen as a positive thing when people move into a hospice. From the perspective of families, it's generally seen as a positive thing because people want to die at home. And they don't want to die typically hooked up to tubes in the ICU. So it allows family members to spend more time together. It allows clinicians to provide comfort care rather than trying to save lives. So overall, I think it's a more beneficial experience for clinicians and patients. I mean, it is challenging because death is not always pretty. It's often very messy, very difficult. There is often a lot of suffering, whether that's physical or psychological. So just dealing with that day in and day out can take a toll. I do think ritual is very important. Like I mentioned earlier, that's something that came up a lot in hospice when I spoke to hospice workers. Ritual came up over and over again. I also think taking the space, like creating space, meaning days off, significant chunks of time before you're assigned a new person after you lose someone, a new patient is important and that's not always recognized. Yeah. And having a sense, and this is less of an issue in hospice than it is in other areas like the ER or the ICU, but having an understanding that you are only playing a small part in what's going on and you don't have the ultimate say in who lives and who dies is very important. I've heard that from multiple clinicians as well, just understanding that you're part of something bigger than yourself is really important because if you see yourself as the be all end all of what's happening with your patient, then of course you're going to take too much responsibility for the outcome. I heard from several that they would think about God's presence in the room or that they would think about life and death as a mysterious interplay of forces. So I think that the ones who are managing to put less pressure on themselves, that really helps to do that. One doctor I spoke to who had an opioid addiction for quite a while found that once he found his own sense of meaning and belief and understanding of the world outside of medicine, that he was able to function better because he didn't see himself as the ultimate authority. So I I think it is happening on individual level, but I do think it would be of great benefit to most.
0: Mm hmm. And you mentioned the value of rituals, and that reminded me many years ago when I was reading Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book Mm. on death and dying. She had this deathbed ritual, and I remember doing that and finding it to be a very profound experience of, of calling all of the people in my life, whether they were alive or not, to my deathbed and spending the entire day doing closure with them
3: yes I think that's very important as well and that's something that came up a lot was forgiveness at the end of life being a real issue for many people so needing to forgive themselves or someone else or have someone else forgive them or forgive their idea of God for whatever it is that they are suffering is huge so if you are able to do that earlier in life I think that's highly beneficial One interesting thing I love about Elizabeth Kugler-Ross is that when she was dying herself, she was quite angry. Like I read a few articles and interviews with her, and I spoke to someone also who visited her when she was dying. And she was quite angry about her own death and also had trouble accepting the care of those around her. And so she told this one man that I interviewed for a separate project. His name is William Spear, and he's uh, kind of a an end of life counselor and a jack of all trades and a helping professional in many different ways. But she told him that she had learned that there were two goals in life to give love and receive love, and that she got an A in the first one and she failed the second one. So I thought that was really powerful, especially for helping professionals because they're often such giving people. You know, people get into healthcare because they want, especially nurses and doctors, all of them. They all get into healthcare because they want to contribute something meaningful and helpful, but they often have trouble taking care of themselves. And maybe on some level, it's systemic, definitely. But on some level, it's also, I think, and I'm saying this as someone who falls into that trap myself. It's also like you feel like maybe you don't fully deserve it as much as other people do. So I think just recognizing that is really important.
0: hmm Yeah. That's another profound lesson. And a lot of traditions talk about dying before you die. And perhaps doing that type of deathbed ritual could make it a little easier, you know, to open up to the possibility of receiving.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be a really interesting thing to explore. I know there's, you know, in Korea, they have these places you can go to Kind of enact your own funeral. They're like these rooms with multiple coffins, and you can go in and you know, you sort of do this funeral rite and you lay in the coffin for a while and you pretend that you're dead to kind of meditate on what that would mean. And they started it because of the epidemic of suicide in the country. So, giving people an opportunity to kind of contemplate their own death and what that would actually mean to themselves and their family members was really powerful for a lot of people. But I do think in general, For all of us, thinking about the fact that we are going to die, what does that mean, what do I want to do with the life that I have, is just something we all need to do more of. And then we won't run into so many traumatic situations when we realize that, oh, we actually do have to die.
0: And a lot of people talk about how people who are afraid to die are actually afraid to live, that it translates across.
3: Yes. And that's very true. I can think of some people I know in my personal life. And yeah, it's from what I have seen, it strikes me as very true. Because if you're afraid to die, then everything seems dangerous. And so, I mean, everything is dangerous, but there's no control. So just the fact that we think we have control is a little outlandish
0: to begin with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all fascinating stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, Rachel Jones, it's been a pleasure to talk with you.
3: It's been lovely to talk to you, too. Thank you so much.
0: Rachel Jones is a journalist and freelance writer whose work has appeared in many well known publications, including The Lancet, The Columbia Journalism Review, and Scientific American. She has a long standing interest in death and dying, which she explores as a staff writer for Seven Ponds, a website and online magazine that informs the public about a wide array of issues related to the end of life. And she's the author of this book that we've been talking about, Grief on the Front Lines, Reckoning with Trauma, Grief and Humanity in Modern Medicine, Perspectives from Healthcare Workers.
1: Was wrong, you were right. I taught you all I knew, and you taught me to fight. You wanted more, I couldn't care less. But you never want to talk about the emptiness, not every time. Nobody likes to talk about the emptiness. Nobody likes to talk about the emptiness. We don't need the We turn the static to a quiet. Or you could say, I'm cold. Cause you're on fire. We're the best of us go up in a funeral pile If you're burning up or you're burning down You're out for the cow or you come around but nobody wants to talk about the emptiness But nobody Talk
0: about the emptiness. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. That's soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.
1: Nobody wants to talk about the emptiness. But nobody wants to talk about the emptiness.